Well, it's great to see you. I've been gone a couple of Sundays. Uh, last week, I was uh, at a conference down in Florida. It was hot and muggy down there, uh, just there for like two and a half days. And then before that, Pam and I took two of our grandkids camping out west. We do that when they hit five years old. This is the second set of cousins that hit five, and so we took them out west camping and, and had a great time doing that. Uh, really just just had a blast, and they, they hung in there the whole trip. When I do that, I always think, you know, we could get to Indiana and just turn around and head back because we are driving all the way out to the Rocky Mountains, but they hang in. I mean, so they, they do a great job. I have some secret weapons. Like, uh, I, I have like a video thing that I rigged up in the back of my truck, so on the way back, after they've already driven across half of the continental United States, when they get bored on the way back, when we're hitting Kansas or Nebraska, I can show a movie. But not until then. Not until we're coming back. You know, that's, that's, that's for later. But they didn't even need it. They hung tough. So good stuff. I appreciate God's blessed me amazingly, Pam and I both, with family. We're in a series, The Seven Churches of Revelation, and we're on the fifth church. And remember, this is 95 A.D., and John is the last original disciple left. All the other ones have been killed. Paul has been put to death. Now it's, it's just John. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, just off the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And uh, as he's there, he's, he's writing a, a letter that God, Jesus, has told him to write. And uh, so he's here, the seven churches are here, and basically this follows a postal route, and that's the order that they're addressed in Revelation. And so now it's Sardis. Sardis is, is kind of an interesting town in that six, they had a famous, a, a famous reputation, uh, an amazing history. Sardis used to be the capital of the Lydian Empire, which controlled all of this, where all these churches were, and over. And there was Persia this way and Greece this way, but the Lydian Empire stood alone. As a matter of fact, Cyrus the Great and, and the Lydian king from Sardis named Cretius were in a battle together. And what was famous about Sardis, the reason it was the capital, is because it had this acropolis outside the city that, was, that had a fortification on top that was considered impregnable, that nobody could get to it. Um, it was just massive. It had 1,500-foot cliffs that were straight off on kind of like three sides of it, and the defenders had walls above that. And so that was the, the strongest fortification in Asia, and they used that. That's why it was the capital. And when... King Cretius was fighting Cyrus the Great of Persia. He actually lost the battle, but he retreated back to Sardis because he knew he, he couldn't be defeated there. So he went up on top of that Acropolis, and then sure enough, Cyrus could not take him and settled in for a long siege. Now, sometimes I do a little rabbit trail. If you just give me one minute, I'll try to tie this into what else is happening in biblical history. See, this is... 
600 years before John is writing that all this is happening in Sardis and it's the capital of the Lydian Empire. And then Cyrus the Great from Persia comes in and they start having a conflict. Well, when all that's happening, remember, that really ties back to what we talked about this in our last series. We always talk about in 586 AD that Babylon conquered Jerusalem, right, and, and took the southern kingdom. Not if you know what I'm talking about. Wow, how quickly we forget. All right, so 600 years before this, the Israel was divided, northern southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom got wiped out by the Assyrians. Then Babylon came in, and the southern kingdom fell. The prophet Daniel was taken in the first wave of that, taken prisoner. Before Jerusalem actually fell, they invaded, and he goes back to Babylon, Daniel serves Nebuchadnezzar during the time of Ezekiel. We talked about him a little bit, right? And then, so he's serving him then. Well, then Babylon is conquered by Persia, and Cyrus the Great takes over, same guy that's fighting this guy in the Lydian kingdom at Sardis, and Cyrus the Great is also served by Daniel. Remember that? In the Bible, so that's kind of how it fits in, if that makes any sense. Whatever, okay, back to reality, back to 95 AD. All that's ancient history. That had happened 600 years prior, but the people of Sardis were super pumped about that. They knew that history. That was their claim to fame, and now Jesus starts the message specifically to them. Remember, he's writing a letter, and in that letter is a portion of that letter is attributed to each of these seven individual churches. John calls representatives. They come to his island. He makes seven identical copies. And they, as a group, deliver that along the postal route, dropping one after another after another. And we call that letter... Okay. This is why I go over this stuff. We call that letter... Revelation. We call that letter? Revelation. Now we're talking. All right, so that's Revelation right there. All right, so now we're in the letter, chapter 3, verse 1, and this is the portion of Revelation that's specifically directed to the church at Sardis. Here we go, verse 1 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write... He who has the seven spirits, and remember, seven spirits, we already covered this. There's only one Holy Spirit, but he refers to the Spirit this way in a way of emphasizing the fullness and completeness of the Spirit. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the seven, he's, this image is Jesus is holding with the seven spirits, holding the seven stars. The seven stars, remember, are messengers, angels, but really better interpreted messengers that are actually leaders, maybe the pastors of these churches. He who has the seven spirits of God, Jesus is calling himself this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds. Here's what he's telling the people of Sardis, their church. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. That you have a name that you are alive. When you look at this word name, it means you have a reputation. We know at this time, Sardis is a church that probably began out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which is also one of these churches. 
and they've been a church for 30 years or so. It, it's kind of a, a leading city, and the church had been thriving, and they had a great reputation as a church, just like they had a great reputation in their history, kind of the same thing. That you have a name that you are alive, you're vibrant, you're doing things, things are getting done, but you are dead. Hey, you have this reputation, you have the name that you're a thriving church, but actually you are dead. And he's going to later say that, that they're dying. And so he's telling them, hey, you're dead. Have you ever seen a dead church? A lot of times around here, sometimes we'll see huge churches made of stone and, and stained glass, and, and then you'll, you'll drive by, and especially when I'm traveling, I might drive by on a Sunday, and the parking lot's just got a few cars in it. And it makes me think, what, ha what was going on in the past that this church was obviously thriving, and what's happened now that it's not? What, what's going on there? What has happened to that church that's not happening? You know, what happened then? It's not happening now. And we see this all around in our culture today. And I don't mean to pick on one uh, denomination, but I'm just going to use one for an illustration, and that is the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church was the third largest denomination in our country for half a century. And now they have left the teaching of the Bible and they are imploding. They are collapsing. Last summer, as they met together uh, at their conferences, they approved 6,200 churches, 6,200 churches to leave the United Methodist Church. And this summer, they're having more of those state conferences, and they'll approve hundreds more. So maybe about 7,000 churches will leave the United Methodist Church from last year to this year. Why? Well, a lot of this is happening because um, some of the progressive leaders are pushing the inclusion of LGBTQ in the leadership of the church, that you can be LGBTQ and be a pastor kind of stuff. And so that's causing this huge revolt. But in my mind, that, that's a little odd to me, and here's why. This is not when they should be leaving. They should have left 20 years ago when they stopped preaching the Bible, when they stopped preaching about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the only way. As soon as you stop saying Jesus is the only way, you have gutted the gospel, your church stands for nothing at that point. And then stop preaching sin. As soon as you want to say, no, hey, we're all okay, you know, we're, we're not that bad, and, and no matter, you know, what you do, it's basically okay in the sight of God. That's the way God made you. As so, then all of a sudden, you have gutted the gospel because there's no reason for Christ to die if we're not all jacked up sinners. And so people will say, well, the problem with you, Kevin, is, is your church, Grace, you know, you guys, you reject people. No. No, that's wrong. 
We don't reject anyone. Yes, we preach what the Bible teaches, but all are come. And, and we're saying what the Bible says is sin is sin. But what people don't understand is we're saying we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. And when we get Jesus, when we put our faith in Christ, that changes the way we live. God comes in and starts changing us from the inside out. The answer is not to rewrite scripture or ignore it about sin. The answer is to preach it because Christianity is the answer for sin. Does that make sense? I almost got loud there. All right, anyway. So... Don't get me wound up. All right. What what makes a church die? Abandoning the Bible. We start up, we abandon the clear teaching of the Bible because it doesn't fit our culture. And it it then it makes the whole death of Jesus make no sense. If we're not desperate for salvation. If there was any other way, Jesus didn't have to die. People say things like, well, hey, we need to get together. We need to drop the traditions that divide us. Well, if they're little insignificant traditions, sure. But that's not what they're talking about. They're usually talking about core doctrine like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That there's only one way. And so we know even archaeologically that there's some evidence. Actually, some of the evidence comes from an ancient synagogue that was there. So you have synagogues and churches in 95 AD. But the synagogue that were normally kept very much separate uh, from other religions, especially Rome, because Rome was a religion in itself, in the synagogue there in Sardis are all these Roman, um, a Roman eagle, uh, Roman symbols, and and so scholars are conjecturing that, as the Jewish people did that, that maybe so did the Christians, that in the 30 years since this church has started, they've started to try to be more palatable to the culture around them and the people who worship the Roman emperor. And so they weren't as bright a light, and their church starts dying. And that's... That, that's a fear that we should all understand that we can have a reputation. We can't stand on that forever. A new generation comes up, you know, every 20, 30 years, and things can change. And you can have a reputation of being alive and be dead. And so what must we do? What must we do? He's saying we've got to, to wake up. Oh, and I didn't tell you the rest of the story. Let me go back. All right, so King Cretius is the king of Lydia, 600 years before John's writing this. And Cyrus the Great is invading. Well, King Cretius, he, he's lost. He kind of had a draw in a battle, and then he lost the Battle of Thumbris, and then he retreats back, but he's got his impregnable fortress up on this Acropolis, this hill right next to Sardis. Actually, the whole city used to be up there, but it grew a little bit, not a lot of room there, and it went down, but then they had this as a fortress. He's up in his fortress. He's feeling good. Everything's great. There's really no way to conquer him. And King Cyrus's forces are watching the defenders, 
And one alert soldier notices one of the defenders, one of the Lydians, fell asleep on the wall. He's kind of a watch guy. Fell asleep when he nodded off. His helmet fell off over the wall down the hill. And so when you're at siege, you're, you're back a ways because you're not we're in range. And they didn't have gunpowder. So you're not in range for arrows or anything to hit you. So you just, you just cut the city off and you're just observing it. You're going to wait them out. That could take years sometimes. But this one soldier sees a Lydian soldier fall asleep, helmet falls off, down the, down the, the wall and over the cliff, and then he watches the soldier disappears, and then he sees him reappear, kind of up on the wall, work his way down, come down this path in the cliff, retrieve his helmet, and go back up. He reports this to Cyrus, the great. Cyrus hears this, and he realizes Oh, do you know the path? And the guy's like, yeah, I know the path that he went. Cyrus sends almost all of his forces to the other side of the Acropolis, mounts a huge attack as a diversion. In the meantime, he sends his special forces up along that same path that they saw this guy take, and nobody's there. They are able to get into the city, fight their way to the gates, unlock the gates, and the whole thing comes in and Sardis falls. And at that time, historians were saying, and military strategists were saying, a child could have defended that part of the wall where there was a huge cliff. You could have had a 10-year-old defending that, and it would have held. And they lost the city. And all... The people in Sardis, they know that. They know that history. It was well known. Actually, that happened, a similar story happened again about 300 years later. I mean, they're known. Yeah, they've had this impregnable story, but twice over the last millennium, they lost it just by falling asleep and not being prepared. What's he say? He says, wake up, verse 2. He says, wake up. Jesus is telling them, hey, you're dead. You had a name. You're dead. Wake up. Be alert. Be watchful. And this meant something to them because they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we know, we know how that turned out for us. I mean, now we're under Rome, and that's because we were under Persia, and then, you know, it all started when they were defending the Acropolis and fell asleep, you know. And we need to get this today we need to wake up and sometimes that's harder than we think while we were traveling with our two our second set of grandkids cousins Weston and Gemma we're going across going across the country I mean we're putting down some miles you know we're camping but we're you know it's it's a ways ever been across Kansas you know Nebraska we always go Nebraska at least there's a river there you know the Platte but anyway, we, we do that. Well, what we notice in the late afternoon is Gemma, she would, you know, after a while, you know, after six, seven hours of driving, you know, she's out. But Weston would not ever sleep. He was content just to watch the country go by. And I remember doing that when I was a kid. You know, just watching. He was just content. He wouldn't play with toys. We had some. He'd just watch all the scenery go by. Never fall asleep. But at night, when it was time to go to bed and he did fall asleep, you could not wake him up. I mean, he was out. So we came in late. 
right? I think it was on a Monday, Tuesday night. I can't re- remember when that was exactly. Because the ne- that next day I flew out for Florida. But we came in. It was late, you know what I'm saying, 10 o'clock at night. Weston had finally fallen asleep. And so now we're unpacking. I pull up to the back door. We're just trying to get him in. It's late, so we're just going to put him in, in bed at our house and then distribute them the next morning. And so we're doing that. But Weston's out of it. So I, I carry him in. You know, I'm carrying other things, sleeping bags, whatever. I carry him in. I set him down below our stairs and say, go on upstairs, you know, to bed. I turn around to grab some stuff. I look back. He is curled up on the floor right there. Boom. So then I get him up, and then I get him up the stairs, you know, and he's got a foot on the stairs. I'm like, go on upstairs, hang on a rail, get him upstairs. And then I turn around to do something else. I turn back around. He is curled up halfway up the stairs, <laughs> sleeping. I mean, he's asleep. You know, so then it's a little easier. You know, I, I grab him, and I take him up the rest. You know, but he was just out. And same thing in the morning. You know, he had to stay up late. But, man, when he fell asleep, he was out, Hard to wake up. And I'm afraid that's true of us. That we are kind of asleep. It's hard for us to see it, hard for us to wake up. And so the question is how to wake up? How do we wake up? Well, that's what Jesus talks about next. He says, Wake up. How do we do that? And strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. So strengthen, he's saying, hey, get good, you know, strengthen these things. Put some effort into this. Make this happen. Because these things that remain, this is sort of their, you know, they have the truth of God's word. And he's saying, strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. It's almost like the imagery is almost like a dying ember in a fire. And then you start fanning that flame to get that heat going, to get that fire rekindled. He's saying, don't be complacent. You know, get serious. Wake up. Get passionate. Believers, true believers in Sardis, fan into flame your dying embers. Get passionate about your relationship with God the way you were at the beginning. And they were doing things, because he says, for I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. They were doing deeds. They were involved in the church. They were, they were probably serving the church. They had a reputation. The reputation was a good church. And they were there, and things seemed to, to be going okay on the outside. But Jesus looks at that and says, not good enough. It's unacceptable. You're just going through motions. Your heart's not really in it. You've just gotten into a Christian habit. And the strength is gone. Because you're walking through the motions like a sleepwalker. And Jesus is saying that's unacceptable. And that's what I think we need to tune into. It's so easy for us to become a believer, and then we get into a routine, and we live a fairly moral life, and you know we know that we're accepted by God, and, and we, yeah, we, we do this and we do that, but our passion, our heart, it's not a flame like it used to be. 
We've grown cold. Not intentionally. We've just drifted. We're still at church. We're still involved. We're still serving. But it's not like it was before. It's like our motivation has shifted. We're just doing it now because, oh, that's what we're supposed to do. But there was a time where we came to learn about God's word, where we served because we wanted others to hear about God's word. And we invited people and we talked to them because we were passionate about what we, we weren't motivated by, oh, this is just the thing they do. We were motivated by accomplishing God's purposes on earth. And we were fired up about that from the inside out. Our motivation should always be gratitude and love. And we all need to do a heart check once in a while. Hey, are we just sleepwalking? Are we just kind of going through the motions? Or are we passionate about God? And a lot of times it's, it's your prayer life that'll kind of let you know. Are, are you just kind of doing the, yeah, I pray at meals, and yeah, I have my list to pray through once a day. Or do you sort of go through the day talking about God and not just talking about God about things that you need, but talking about God about his purposes and what he wants done and how we can be involved in that in every situation. How do we strengthen our passion? How do we strengthen our passion? How do we fan into flame to get that back? Well, the next thing he talks about here is he says, so remember, so remember what you've received and heard. And he said this to one other church. And if you remember, we talked about that. And he's like, hey, remember what you've received and heard. What's that? The gospel. What gets our passion back? When we remind ourselves daily that we are unacceptable before God, that we have sinned against him, that we all deserve separation from God forever in a place called hell. And we know that's by all justice, by all righteous standards, that's where I should be right now. And every day and every breath is a gift. And God has saved me from the destiny that I deserve and he did it at great cost, the death of his son. And Jesus willingly gave his life, tortured to death by his own creation for us. How do we get that back? Remember. Remember how the gospel impacted our life. And of course, we have stories. We actually have stories and from people in our church, and we have a lot of them on video, and, and here's one that I want to share with you this morning. My name is Tanya Gilbert, and I have been attending Grace Community Church for 12 years now. Throughout my life, I would periodically attend church when things were going bad. Um, when things got better, I'd stop attending church. Prior to finding Grace, I was living in Maine, pursuing my Bachelor of Science in Nursing. During my summer clinicals, my then husband asked for a divorce. This would be my third husband and my third divorce. I was the woman at the well in John chapter four. I found myself a single mom with two children 
I wasn't working because I was attending my clinicals, didn't have any money. I had to sell all my gold jewelry so that I could feed my kids. My parents had to come from Michigan and move me in with them. I was at the lowest point in my life. After about six months of living at my parents' house, I had my life somewhat back together and I decided to put myself out there and start dating again. I had prayed to God for some particular items that I would like to find in a husband. I found Chris, my current husband. He was everything that I had asked God for and I knew that God had blessed me with him. I told Chris after a couple months of dating that I wanted to attend church. Chris said that he would only attend Grace Community Church. He was friends with Kathy Mack, worked with Kathy Mack, close friends with Brian Smith, and he knew about Grace from them. My first service at Grace Community Church was February 2011. Pastor Kevin was preaching on pornography addiction. What struck me at that service was Kevin was preaching right from the Bible. And he told everyone in the church that even though the Bible says it's wrong, he wanted those that struggled with this sin to know that we are all sinners. And at Grace, we care about you and we want you here. And that made a huge impact on me being raised Catholic because I had never had sin approach that way to me. I started listening online on the weekends I worked and couldn't attend in person, but I did not give my life to Christ until April 2011. It was at that moment that I realized I needed Him and I needed a continuous relationship with Him. I expressed that I know I'm a sinner and that I knew it was by Jesus' grace and grace alone that I was going to get into heaven. I put my faith and trust in Jesus that day. I'm still not a perfect person. I'm still a sinner. I still struggle with anxiety and fear. But I know that no matter what I'm struggling and what I'm going through, that God is there and He has me. Even though I attended service every Sunday at Grace, I wouldn't get involved in any of the women's groups or classes. I was scared that if people knew my past, they wouldn't like me or want to be around me. In 2020, when COVID hit and I had gotten baptized, I started attending Jess's class. And my sisters in Christ in Jess's class found my story out and they loved me anyway. They told me I'm no longer the person that I was. I'm no longer the woman at the well and I need to quit identifying that way, that I'm made new in Christ and he loves me just the way I am. I want everybody to know that if God can love somebody like me, he can love you too. So here's Tanya just reflecting back on the gospel and how it impacted her life at a certain time in her life where things had not been going well and got a little better and, and then she's realizing that there's a God who loves her. Decides to go to church and her husband's like, well, I've been hearing about this one church because of people at work who've been talking to me. That's the church being alive. Making a difference, impacting people, impacting families. You know, that, that we realize, hey, we all come to Christ the same way. 
we have to admit that we're sinners. You know, people are out there, you know, they criticize you, you this, you do this, you do that. No, we're the ones saying we're all sinners. We've all sinned. There's none of us more saved than anybody else before we come to Christ. And there's none of us more saved than anybody else after we come to Christ. Salvation is only in Christ. And that only happens when we admit our sin and realize it, for a holy, just God, he must punish sin. That because God loved us and loves us, he allowed his only son, Jesus, who committed no sin, to be tortured to death, as I mentioned, on the cross at Calvary, to pay our sin penalty. But the only way that that, that works for us is when we come to him on his terms, which is through faith in Christ. And, and we put, when we put our faith in Jesus... The Holy Spirit will ignite our hearts. We will have a desire to follow him. If we're just saying words, check a box, move on with our life, live our own way, that's not salvation. Salvation is when we truly, sincerely are putting our trust in Christ, and we know that's real, when we at least have a desire to follow him. We not, may not do it very well, especially at first. We have the desire to do it. Of course, none of us ever do that perfectly. That's what Jesus is reminding the people of Sardis. He's saying, remember the gospel. Remember when you became believers. You know, and when he's writing the church, he's writing people. The church is the people. And so he says, we remember, remember what we received and heard. And then what else? And then he says, one more thing. He says, and keep it. Remember that and keep it. Remember that gospel. Once we, once we hear the word, he's saying, and keep it, meaning act on it. So for the people of the church in Sardis, some of these people, maybe the majority of them are not even believers anymore. You know, I don't mean anymore as in they lost their salvation. That doesn't happen. I mean, 30 years later, the church has a bunch of people in it that aren't even believers. They go through the motions of Christianity, but they're not true believers. And keep it. If you know the gospel, then act on it. Ask God for forgiveness. Repent, you know, follow him is what he's saying. And if we are believers, it's the same thing. That we live every day in light of the gospel. You know, God has saved me for a purpose, a reason. How am I living this day for God? God, how can I be better for you? God, what can I change for you? God, what can I accomplish for you? Keep it. And so we're called to wake up, strengthen our passion and resolve by remembering what we received and heard and then acting on it, keeping it. But to accomplish all this, we need one more thing, and that says, and repent. We keep coming back to repentance. That, by the way, is how you become a believer you repent, which means you change your mind, which changes your direction. You get, oh, I changed my mind about who Jesus is. He really is the son of God. He really did die for my sins. But that doesn't save you. You change your mind about God, 
But then you change directions by putting your faith, your trust, your hope, your belief in Jesus. Not that he existed. You trust him as your savior, that he died for your sins, that you don't have a chance without him. And we know that's sincere when we have this desire to follow him that normally would not be inside of us. Repent, that's how you become a believer, but it's also how we live the life as a believer. We keep repenting. We keep messing up. We say, okay, God, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And how can I do this better? I want to turn towards you. I don't want to live my way. I want to live your way. And we just live, and we don't have to live in a bunch of guilt. We just repent. God, I admit it was wrong, and give me strength to avoid this. It's not going to affect my salvation. Once saved, always saved. But Lord, I have a desire to follow you. I want to do that better and better. That's how we live out our lives. But the real Jesus, the Jesus that a lot of churches don't want to talk about, you know, warns us. He gives us a warning of judgment. We see that as we continue in this verse. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, warning. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Now, there's a debate. He's saying, hey, judgment's coming. There's a debate Come like a thief. That always means I'm going to come suddenly. And the two views are, well, he's talking about end times, the rapture. You know, that's going to happen. This is going to be much more difficult to become a believer. Or some people are saying, no, actually, this is a judgment on the church. He's saying your church will not exist. If you don't get this, if you don't square this away, your church is going to die for good. It'll be gone. But Jesus says he'll bless the faithful remnant. And that's what we see in the next verse, verse four. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes, and this overcomes, this is true believers will always overcome. So he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will not erase. It's kind of interesting because in most cities, Roman cities of that time, like Sardis, they had a register for all their citizens of the city and they would be put in this register of the city. But if they died Their name was taken away. Or if they committed a a criminal act that they thought was sufficient, you know, hey, we can't, this guy can't be part of our city anymore because being on that list, that register of citizens allowed you some privileges. But you die or you mess that up, it's gone. And here Jesus is saying, hey, for the overcomers, for the people who truly believe that are in the church, for that segment of the church, your name will never be erased. From the book of life. It's not like the city you're living in where you could do something wrong and it's gone, or you could die and your privileges go away. No, your name will never be erased, is what he's saying. And then he ends like he like he ended the others in verse six. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice, it's not, 
he who has an ear, hey, Sardis, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. It's no. Understand all this stuff of all the churches, just like we should be paying attention to this because it applies to all of us. And the question is, hey, if we want our church to be alive, it starts with every individual. Where are you with Christ? It could be that you've not come to Christ yet, that you've, you've heard this good news, what we call the gospel, that Christ died for us and we put our faith in him. He'll save us and never leave us, never forsake us, no matter what, from that point on for eternity. And if you need to do that, there's no better day to make that decision than today. And for some of us, We've made that decision, but we've grown complacent. We've sort of got used to Christianity. We're not so fired up about it. We go through the motions. We do some of the work. And Jesus says, it's unacceptable. Your motive's wrong. You're not doing it because you're fired up about my mission and what I'm doing, what I've done for you, and what you want for others. You're just kind of sleepwalking through this. And if either of those things apply to you today, there's no better day to get, it than, to get it right than today. And so our team's gonna come out and we're gonna, we're gonna close in a song like we do. And I, I just wanna... I just want to try to make this real for you. If you're a believer, you're saying, yeah, I've, I've gotten out of the God habit. You know, I, I mean, I'm in the habit, but, but, I, but maybe for the wrong motivations. Yeah, I've, I've grown complacent. I'm a little calloused. It's just not the same. I need my fire back. I need my passion back. If that's you, maybe during this song, you'll just, because we've got to do something to wake up. And so maybe just walking down here, kneeling in front of this, platform will help you as you pray to God so it'll be something you'll remember and so we invite you to do that while we're singing this song and for those of you who've never really take that step to put your faith in Christ with a desire to follow him it's the most important decision you'll ever make you can make that right now at your seat you could come and pray down here if you have questions, stop in room one right here in this corner of our auditorium and we'll answer your questions. Let's stand and pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and we ask you, Lord, to move in our hearts, all of our hearts, Lord, because we can all become more complacent. We all need to fan into flame the embers of your love in our heart. And Father, for our friends and neighbors, that are here that don't know you, God, we ask that your spirit would impress upon their heart that, that you love them no matter who they are, what they've done, that you're offering them new life, and Lord, that they would, they would take action on that. Lord, help us to sing to you with praise and help us to do business with you. Take action with what's happening in our heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen.